everyone. Welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and it's an honor to have you here. I really appreciate your presence and your attention. And today, I'm excited to share with you a new episode with Miles Schertz. Miles is someone I've known through the Insight Meditation community for a while. For many years, he uh, directed and managed a retreat center on a homestead that he had built in northern Vermont, what's called the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, a very, very beautiful part of New England. Um, and I met him there on a retreat that he hosted, or he, uh, he hosted a retreat with the Thai forest teacher, Ajahn Sachito, about maybe six or seven years ago. Terry and I led a retreat at his retreat center called Sky Meadow. And I've known about his work for a while, but recently I've taken a closer look, particularly at his approach to what he calls conscious communication. He does a lot of work with couples. That's kind of the, the wheelhouse of his primary form of employment, I think, at this point. Um, but the, the work is not just focused on couples' work. The communication that he's emphasizing would benefit any relationship, whether it's a family member, a friend, a work colleague. Um, I think it really gets to, he points, puts his finger on the, the root of conflict in communication that revolves around what I'm calling the truth trap or the trap of truth, where two people get into disagreement or argument about what is happening, what reality was. And Miles really encourages a pivot in the conversation and the style of communication to focus instead of on what was happening, what the truth was, instead to pivot and focus on what the feelings are that are present in each party and what are the unmet needs, what are the needs that need to be addressed. From there, empathy can open up, compassion can start to flow, and a, a, the communication can move towards generative repair or generative growth in the relationship and, and, and understanding of one another. I, I find this is just fascinating stuff. I, I feel like I'm coming to it very late in life at, as I approach 50, <laughs> my 50th year. But this is, I think, if I, as I say in the, in the episode, if I could give one skill to my uh, beloved Irish godsons, and I hope they're listening, Will and Sam, if I could give one skill to my Irish godsons, it would be this particular skill of uh, conscious communication. Uh, I think it would cut down on a huge amount of interpersonal suffering and conflict in one's life, maybe relieving one of years of that kind of suffering. So if you're interested in looking at the, or exploring the intersection of insight meditation, or particularly just meditation that, that leads to awakening of any form, um, and how that can be expressed and realized through communication, um, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We get into some pretty, well, Miles gets into some pretty out there stuff. He, he talks about um, putting, getting rid of morality and uh, embracing integrity as a solution. I didn't fully follow him there. You'll hear me getting kind of stuck in, in a gap of silence at times where, for one, I think a lot of ideas were just exploding in my head at the same time, and I wasn't sure which one to pursue. Um, but I should also add, personally, as I told Miles after the show, um, my there's a, as if you're in the Sangha, you know this, but my, my niece is, has been sick for quite some time now this year, and she's in a very uh, critical and scary phase of her, of her treatment. Um, we're not sure how much longer she has, and, and that's weighing very heavily on my heart and mind, and sometimes... I'm just, I'm aware I'm just not as cognitively capable as I once was um, going through this right now. 
So I thank you for your um, uh, forgiveness, I should say, or your tolerance as you listen, but I really hope you enjoy this conversation. And as we sort of hint at, um, I'm going to be having Miles back on for a, an extended series. Who knows how long we'll go, but there's so many topics that he and I went over in the pre-taping uh, connection where we're, th we're looking at insight meditation and communication, the problem with the culture wars, uh, existential threats and potential collapse, and what the trap of the ego has to do within all of that. So his, his, his areas of interest are very overlapping with the, the interests of a full spectrum, fully integrated uh, process and path of awakening in everyday life. And I'm really looking forward to sharing these episodes with you. So now, without further ado, actually, I should say before I give you the, the, the episode, if you enjoy this conversation, please, please, please share it with a friend, share it with a colleague, share it with a, um, a, a yoga spiritual friend or a family member. Consider leaving a review. All of these gestures on your part go a long way to support the work we're doing here at the podcast, the work that we're, Terry and I are doing in our sangha and supporting our guests in terms of pointing people in the direction of their products or their own services. So please consider sharing or leaving a review or doing both. Uh, it would mean a tremendous amount to me. And without further ado, I bring you Miles Shirts on Conscious Communication. Today, I am with Miles Schertz. Miles, great to see you, and welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Thanks, Josh. I'm doing great. Good to be here. So I, I'm very excited to speak with you um, and to just set up for the listeners uh, this conversation. We're going to be focusing on communication itself, what you're calling conscious communication. And I think we'll be looking at conscious communication through the lens of interpersonal relationships, um, or even couples work. But I hope, I think we'll, we'll explore this as we go, that this, this style of communication or this approach to communication is, has a, a broad range of application across really any relationship you're in, whether it's your friends, your work, colleagues, family members, personal, uh, your partner. Um, <clears throat> And I think it would, I, I would be, there's a lot we're going to be able to talk about. And we've, I'm glad we've already dog-eared the intention to have a series of conversations. Um, and the more I've looked into your work, I, I, can, I can already see all the directions that many of these conversations can go. But as a bit of, just a quick bit of biographical background, um, what's, what, what would you like to share? Like, how did you get into working on communication and, and where, where did that come out of? Sure. Um, I think it's important, um, especially because your audience um, is uh, interested in meditation and uh, teachings such as those of the Buddha. That that was my intro to everything that my life is about now. So that was a, a, a turning point in my life when I was 19 years old, in the middle of college, and had a, a, a crisis of meaning. And uh, I was pretty desperate to find answers, and I wasn't finding it in anything I was looking for. Western psychology, uh, philosophy wasn't uh, working for me. <laughs> and so I, I left. I just departed my culture and ended up um, 
really randomly in a, a small Asian country, Sri Lanka, um, lived there for six months, and during that time was very drawn to the Buddhist monks and found myself at the end spending a month in a silent retreat in a monastery. And that uh, just opened my mind uh, to what I now think of as the meaning of life and the purpose of life and gave me my first set of skills, which was, you know, awareness and presence and how to be um, aware of my thinking mind and, you know, how it distorts reality and doesn't serve me. Um, so I came back to the U.S. after that kind of kind of confused and not clear at all what to do with my life. Uh, and I was drawn to intentional community. This was the late 70s. There was a lot of commune activity still happening. And uh, sooner or later, I found my way to a, a large commune in, in uh, Washington State. And I was really into it. And there was like 150 of us, and we had a 500-acre piece of land. And we all we were going to create a new world that, that was based on peace and love. Which was which commune was this? It's it's a very obscure commune. It's okay. actually still still alive. I went to visit uh, a year and a half ago. Um, a much smaller, pared down version of what it once was, but it was part of that movement where a lot of us were um, just didn't want to repeat what our parents had done, and and we saw the ills of society and wanted to live on the land with each other in a new way. We all had, in this group, we all had that kind of ideal. And what happened is we, in a very short amount of time, a year or two, we were at each other's throats. There was conflict every every which way you can think of it. And no, uh, pos no skills, no uh, process for resolving it. And I saw that. I was, I was young. I was the youngest one there, actually. I was in my early 20s. And... Um, my heart broke, and I realized that we were we were we were being crushed by something that we couldn't see that wasn't the system anymore, but it was internal. It was something inside of us, and I um, started searching around and found people who had studied with uh, Carl Rogers and were were practicing his skills, uh, things like active listening, and um, that was the the early formations of what we now call sort of win-win conflict resolution. And I, I learned that there were, there were tools. It was a, a nation a technology that was you know, coming out of the sixties and seventies. And I dove into it and uh, fast forward maybe four years and I got trained as a professional mediator. Um, and that has been a way. So the, the thing that I will come back to, I think during this conversation is that, for me, it was really a way to implement the Dharma, the teachings of Buddha, the, the concept of awareness and presence in relationships. And what I noticed when I lived at uh, retreat centers and spent time in monasteries, which I did a lot in my 20s especially, is that people were happy and, and um, you know could, could achieve a level of peace on the cushion. But as soon as we were talking to each other, as soon as, as, soon as there was anything we had to decide together any real consequences of having to communicate we were back in the same space that that we were trying to get away from people were arguing there was conflict uh, power struggle all those sorts of things so for me this became a way to implement the dharma to and not just as a moral thing to be to be um less aggressive or nicer it's um 
and I, we spoke about this the other day and, and uh, we'll come back around to this, I think, in this conversation. But what the skills that I'm, I teach now call conscious communication, what they do is they interrupt the programming of the mind that interferes with love and caring relationships. It makes us want to compete with each other. It compels us to compete with each other. So if we don't, my experience now is that if we don't interrupt our, our what Buddha called conditioning, the programming of the mind, the, the habits that we have that are so ingrained, we don't even see them. If we don't interrupt that, we're going to, we can have the best intentions of the world for, for peace and love. But as soon as we get into relationship with each other, um, we're going to struggle and it's going to, it's going to fail. And that's what we're seeing today. We're just seeing, you know, failure of human relations. Uh, there are successes for sure, but there's a lot more failure and, you know, couples coming apart, uh, nations at each other's throat. I mean, I don't think I have to tell the audience here about that. So, um, what my teaching is about now is that we have to interrupt the programming in our, in our thinking mind and reorient ourselves. And we'll talk about that today, what, what that is and what that, what that does. But the simple point I want to make now is that it's really a way to take spiritual practice. If you think of meditation or interrupting thoughts in the mind as a, as a practice of personal growth, spiritual uh, evolution and happiness, this is a way to take that practice into your talking relationships with other people. And that's what I love about it. It's a, it's a really where the rubber meets the road practice. And they go hand in hand. The, the communication skills and the Dharma are, are going to the same place. They're going in the same direction. Yep. So just to reflect a little bit, practice a little active, reflective listening. Yeah. Um, I mean, your description of what you were noticing in these communities and among meditators and the conflicts that would arise amongst them, I'm, I can, you know, throw my hat into that ring. It, 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 I, it's, it's been one of the most, um, frustrating, painful dynamics to, 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 to really go into a retreat or period of intensive practice and feel one's heart open really wide, um, to feel that you've connected to some higher, uh, insight about how one can be in the world and how conflicts can uh, not proliferate the way they had been historically in your life. And then to sort of experience that opening and then to find yourself falling into uh, potholes or sand traps or booby traps or slipping on what I often call uh, cognitive banana peels, you know, and finding ones just laid out by, unsurprising unexpected escalation of of words um that really and and so one of the things i wanted to uh, fr- use to frame this conversation is that um i have two very beloved godsons in ireland they're irish kids and i've known them most of our life now and um i texted one of them who's about 26 the other day and i said to him I'm having this guy in my podcast about communication skills. And if you can learn this skill, if you can learn the skill that we're going to be talking about in the show, I'm going to, 
guess that you will avoid or, or move through or better resolve, uh, you know, years of unnecessary suffering. You'll, you'll be able to really avoid, like, if I look back at most of my emotional angst and pain and anguish, it's, it's on the interpersonal level over things that shit that gets said. <laughs> and it, so I, I, when I read your book, Conscious Communication for Couples, it was, it was a real, there was something about it. It was, it was, there was a, it was a collection of things that you're putting together. I had seen some of these elements in other places, but there was a kind of a specific way that you put your finger on a few things that really like tapped into, like opened up an insight that this is actually, this has to happen. This has to happen. And, and so, and I said, as I said to uh, some of the, the people we practice with today, you know, I can intellectually understand this now. And I've written it out and I've, I can, I, I, I sort of have a little bit of a formula around your strategy, but in and intellectualizing it, I can also tell you and speak about how challenging it is to access it in the moment. Um, you know, even with over simple things, it's, it's just because it, what you were saying around interrupting the, 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 the programming, interrupting the thinking conditioning of the mind. Um, I think as a meditator, anyone that meditates will is familiar with their, their monkey quote unquote monkey mind or their the tendency to wander into thinking. And they're familiar with returning to the breath and taking a pause and checking in. But to do that in conversation, it's like, no, no, now you're driving a, a, a really fast car that, that has a lot of power in it. And uh, you may not understand how to shift gears. You may not understand how to hit the brake. And so it's it's both humbling, but as I ultimately, I feel very excited about this because it it really is pointing in a direction that I think um, I think many people will benefit from. I shared with you on Friday that um, you know I had at the beginning into the pandemic I I had a, a life rearrangement and I merged life with a, a business partner uh, and and now heart partner of mine named Terry. And, uh, with all the stresses in various ways of, you know, merging lives and figuring out our, our new business together and, uh, integrating her son into our house. And, um, there was just a lot of stress on top of the pandemic and political discourse and all that. Um, and it's become clear to me that uh, communication skills are, are not just like, luxurious things to have when you have time. It's like, if you want to survive, they're, they're absolutely essentials. Um, but one of the things that I've learned, uh, having gone through couples therapy with my partner is that one of the most like difficult dynamics that I started to see, and it took me a while before I could actually recognize and name what was happening. But one of the most difficult dynamics was our, we were arguing about what had happened, and I have loosely uh, termed that or phrased that as the, the trap of truth or the, the truth trap, that in couples therapy, we'd be debating about whose vantage point on truth was more accurate and, and who needed to atone for the, the mis, uh, misrelationship or the poor relationship to, to the truth, and, 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 and that literally would send us into hours of processing. And so we were doing reflective dialoguing on our own where each of, each of, each of us would speak for maybe a minute or two. 
reflect, and then the other person would reflect back what they heard. But a lot of times the reflection was around trying to capture the, the, the entire story of what the other person was sharing. And this was exhausting. I mean, it was just, it was really, really, really hard process. We did get to resolution and we're still together. Um, but, um, after reading your book, I realized that was part of our problem in a way that we were in some sense fixated on trying to establish agreements around truth versus being able to name and acknowledge what each of us were feeling, what we were both feeling. And then from what our feelings, once our feelings got acknowledged, then being able to establish and, and hear what each of us had as needs or held as needs. So this movement from truth to emotion, uh, feelings and needs, I think is, is one that, uh, like, that's the thing I have, like I, my ego trap, my, or my, <laughs> my, my, my conditioning is so strong in the moment. It's, it's so hard to, implement that for me at the moment um and you know i just so i just i know i just said a lot but that's i want to look at that for a moment like this this issue of arguing about the truth and and how you why and how you don't recommend that great starting place um <laughs> because i think i think people listening can relate to this uh, so yeah just just to reiterate that's a place that I think all of us get stuck is we value the truth. <laughs> and when there's a, a misunderstanding, argument, conflict, often the first thing we try to do is establish what happened. And so let's just pull that apart for a moment. Um, I'll try to keep this simple that when you do that, when we do that, what we're doing is we're trying to figure out who's right. It's that's the underlying uh, agenda. And <clears throat> I just want to name that and for us to bring that to the surface and notice that. Um, and a very simple thing that we do, we do it because we're programmed to do it. We can talk more about that in a bit, maybe, is that we mistake being right for getting our needs met. It's a, it's a fundamental uh, mistake. And, and most of us make that mistake. We, we think that, um, get being right or is necessary to, in order to win an argument, let's say, and winning an argument equals getting our needs met. And they don't. Um, and it's really obvious in a, in an intimate relationship with your partner. Let's say you, you win the argument. Let's say you get to be right. Your, your story is the prevailing story. Well, then the consequence is your partner's wrong. And, no, nobody likes to be in that position to be, I mean, you know, some of us can be humbly say, yes, I, I'm, I was wrong. I made a mistake, but most of us don't like being in that position of being wrong. And it just sets you up for more conflict. It, it, and it, it separates you. It puts distance between you. So, um, winning, winning a, an argument or a conflict with your spouse is, is self-destructive. You know, I, the, the, the image I have is like boxing with yourself in a mirror. It's, um, it doesn't work and it doesn't get you anywhere. You might, you know, you, we can sort of pull that off in the world, um, with, with strangers, with other countries, with other cultures, we can try to win. We can try to be right and we can sort of justify it and get away with it. But the closer the relationship is to you, your, your neighbor, your friend, your family member, your spouse, 
nobody wins when you get when you get into that kind of a um, competition. That's what I call competitive conflict. So the the thing to keep in mind is that we're programmed to do that. It's we're oriented that way. You can't you can't stop that from happening just because you don't want it to happen. <laughs> Um, and I think that's a big mistake a lot of us make that are into spirituality and dharmas. You know, once we get into spirituality or any kind of personal growth, we we value love over hate. We value peace over war, of course. Um, and we think because we value those things, we can then we're there. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just the beginning. Is wanting those? Then what you have to do is find out what's what's preventing that from happening what's keeping the world from doing it but more importantly what's keeping my mind from doing that and that's what you just articulated is you you got into this relationship obviously you know you care about each other you love each other i'm guessing you both have done spiritual practice sounds like you've done a lot and all of a sudden here you are kind of locked in a in an argument that um the 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 consequences of it diminishes the love doesn't it? it it undermines the caring you can feel your heart kind of closing up and here's this person that the last thing you want is to close your heart to so what i have learned in my work is that we the sitting on the cushion doing spiritual practice is helpful it's really helpful to get awareness of what's going on in my mind without it, it it's very hard to do anything but once you get awareness of what's going on in your mind, then I believe we need we need other skills. We need a, a, another technology other than awareness practice to interrupt the habit of mistaking being right for getting my needs met. In other words, we have to focus, in, and you said it a moment ago, on our, on our basic needs, which begins with feeling the emotions in the body. We can talk about that also in a And and let go of being right, which is a very difficult thing to do. It's really humbling uh, for our egos. It's the the phrase I wrote down last night is um, it was a phrase that I, I when I interviewed Joseph Goldstein, we were talking about our first encounter with Sayada Upandita, and he said it was like a belly flop. <laughs> like he felt like he just belly flopped in the practice and. That's my experience with with what you're what you're doing is is that um, to interrupt that the story, particularly when I perceive a slight, and I think I'm you know I, I think I'm characterologically wired for whatever reason to to be highly sensitive to to slights, and some people have said I'm thin skinned, and I can see that now. And um, but in that wiring, you know, when someone says you know. Did you see how you did that over there? Like they could be saying something innocuous and immediately I'm just like, no, 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 no. That's not what I, that's, that wasn't my intention. Of course, I didn't have that intention. So, so clearly there's a problem with their perception. If they, they're seeing this intention that they're, if they're, they're suffering from attribution error, I didn't have this in, <laughs> and it goes on and on. And um, it's to, to, to interrupt it as you're describing. And I'm, I want to explore this more to interrupt that, that it's one thing to do it on, in meditation. Like as you're saying, but to to do it live in a in a com in a conversation um, is no easy feat, and I and I so I want to just underline what you just said that it's really really hard. Or at least it is for me. Um, 
so like how what do you counsel people to do when 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 this happens okay so the the very first thing is to feel your own body which is a the thing that dharma practice has taught me you know be spending lots and lots of time on the cushion and long retreats i've I can feel my body. I can I can notice sensations. And the first thing is just tune into your own body, your own sensations. When your needs are all met, this is just a, a simple principle that can help be so helpful in this. When your needs are when your basic needs are met, your body's relaxed. You you basically feel okay. You might you might not feel euphoric, but you feel good. You're you're okay. When one or more of your basic needs aren't met, you don't feel okay, and you'll feel that in your body. It'll it'll show up as uh, tightness or or some kind of discomfort in the body. So the first thing is just notice that you're upset that you don't. You're the word emotionally charged is is one that I use a lot because it feels like you have a charge energy in your body. So first thing for everybody, all of us, is notice when you're charged and and when you're not charged, and know the difference. So the reason that you know this is not difficult, but nobody taught us how to do this. You know, we most of us grew up in a culture that just ignored emotions, didn't have any any uh, good constructive way to deal with them. <laughs> so, so we need that. We just we just need to admit that we're we're new at this. And so, the first thing is feel the emotion in your body. Know when you're emotionally charged, and then consider the possibility. <laughs> That this it's simply a signal that one of your needs isn't met. Right? Needs we're talking about. So start with hunger, right? You're hungry, you feel it in your stomach. That's a that's an example of what we're talking about. Um, of course, we get beyond our physical needs very quickly, and what we're usually talking about in these conversations is emotional needs. So it could be a need for connection. It could be a need for space, independence. It could be a need for safety. Um, those are basic human needs. And when those aren't met, you're going to feel it in your body. And the thing to do is notice it and attend to it, which is simply a matter of breathing. You know, soften, relax. The same thing we do on the cushion is notice your body tension, soften. So obviously that's not easy when you in the moment and you're feeling threatened by whatever just happened. But that is the way out it has to start there and it's not that difficult it's just something we have to practice mm-hmm. so and then once you feel that in your body notice that there's an emotion there and see if you can put a word to it not it's not it's it's not a right or wrong word but just naming it brings it to the surface it doesn't it brings it out of the shadows out of behind so things like i feel hurt i feel sad i feel scared I feel confused, or just I feel upset, or I feel uncomfortable. And you begin a conversation with that. You you lead with, this is what's going on for me. And we're going to talk about truth, I think, because that's already come up here. And in this, in this new, I, this is a new paradigm that I'm talking about. These are the, this is the, this is the texture, the landscape of the new paradigm. And these are the tools that enable us to access it. So Occasionally during this conversation, I'll reference the what I call old school, the old paradigm, the new paradigm. The new paradigm is I'm in charge of taking care of me. And if I'm upset, 
If one of my needs isn't being met, that's my responsibility. I can get that need met often by asking you or talking with you about it. And often that's necessary. However, the responsibility is mine. I have to, I have to take the lead there. So what we're doing is we're, we're challenging the assumption that you or, or my partner or somebody else um, is actually the one affecting me, making me feel this way. It, it, sure, it certainly looks like that, and it feels like that. Um, but what's also going on is that one of my needs isn't being met. And if I don't take responsibility for that, nobody's going you know, so it ha- you just it's not a it's not a big thing like oh it's my responsibility. It's just of course it's your responsibility. Who else who else is going to take care of your needs? You know, you you have to take the first step. So the first step is no is feeling what I need and then being able to put language to it. Starting with I feel uncomfortable. Um, then we we go to when you said this or did this very simple facts, and this is where we cut off most of the story Um, because most of us are going to focus on you did this. This is what you did. Um, And then they're, they're going to argue, no, I didn't do that. Just like you said a moment ago, no, no, I I didn't do that. And then there we, we go. Now we're, we're arguing over who did what, (laughs) and it never ever resolves because we each have a different interpretation of what happened. So in this language, this new language of conscious communication, that doesn't matter, which is astonishing to think about. But what actually occurred doesn't matter. And the simple reason is that we'll never agree on what occurred. Um, and those those of you that have done Dharma practice know this. When, when you're on a long retreat, your mind makes up stories about, I thought about this this morning, you know, your mind makes up stories about everybody else on retreat. You're on this silent retreat yeah, most of the people you don't have, you don't even, never met them before. You don't even know them. And a couple of days into the retreat, you've got a narrative about all these people that you don't know, and the mind just goes on and on and on and makes stuff up. So, so we know that about our mind. If you don't know that about your mind, check it out, <laughs> because part part of what we're dealing with here is a mind that imagines, and and then we believe that imagination. So in this. I know you want to say something. I've just let me finish this thought. But the second step is, first step is I feel upset. Second step is when you, and then we're just looking for a simple fact. When you said um, that I didn't treat you kindly, just mm-hmm. verbatim what they said. No story, no other, no other details because it doesn't matter. What matters yeah. is that one of my needs isn't being met. And by articulating that to you, I can help myself get that need met and you might be able to help get it. Uh, you may not, but at least if I articulate it, we can have a chance at it. Um, and and then we don't have to argue over what happened. Mm-hmm. With the, so there's two things that are going off in my mind, but I can hopefully catch both of them. One is, the, the little progression you just walked us through, which is first check in with your body, be able to discern when your chart, when there's an emotional charge, when there's not an emotional charge. If there is an emotional charge, take that as data that a, a need, probably an emotional need is not being met and begin speaking from that feeling. 
So I feel whatever X fill in the blank. Um, and then you followed it with a phrase when you, when there, when there was some um, event or you, I think you use the word fact, like you, you point to a fact that was related to triggering the feeling in you. Exactly. Now, if I, I'm just going to, so what I, you kind of spoke to this already a little bit, but the, the fact that we're, you're trying to identify a fact to, 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 to reference the feeling with, without getting into the argument of the truth, because the facts and truth can sort of blur into each other. Um, so, and I can imagine that if someone were to say that phrase to me, like when I feel, and this is just the way I'm wired, so it's be an interesting case study here, but like, um, if my partner were to say that, I know I would feel defensive sure. that I, that I was responsible for hurting her. Yeah. And, um, and that seems to be getting into the truth of what happened again. So I have a little confusion around how to work through that and some of the, f the phrases that you suggest. Okay. Um, this is great. This is, this is sort of, this is really the, the nuts and bolts. So I'm giving, I'm going to give you three phrases. That's all there is to this. Um, and we've already covered the first two, but let's, let's pour down on the second one. So the, when you, the fact part, um, this is a skill we need to learn and we need to be able to, to, to tell the difference between a statement of fact and an interpretation. So if I say to you, when you said to me, um, that I, uh, was, when you told me that I was lazy, um, because I, I didn't take out the garbage last week. That's a fact if indeed my partner said that. But what we tend to do is we tend to right away interpret that as, you know, when you called, when you, um, let's see, how do I, how call do me I, a slob. Yes. Uh, well, that's not true because maybe, maybe she did call you a slob, but, um, what we, t what we tend to do is right away we interpret it when you were mean to me, when you spoke, when you spoke, or this is a common one today, when you spoke abusively. Okay, so my interpretation is you were mean to me. You spoke abusively to me. That is not a fact. That's an interpretation, and it's okay. It's it's your truth. It's fine. It's not right or wrong. I'm, you don't. What you never want to argue interpretations ever, never, because they're just interpretations. What you do want to do is tell the difference, and and in my work, that's what I do. So when I work with couples, for example. Um, I facilitate a live conversation between the couple. That's mostly what I do. And I teach them this basic skill plus the listening one, which we'll talk about in a minute. Cause that's, um, that's a key to your, to your, um, I don't know if it was a question, but your suggestion that you, you're going to get defensive. And I want to, I want to talk about that. So earmark that for us. But first on this thing of just stating the fact is, if I say you were mean to me, that's not a fact. If I say when you when you told when you said to me, Miles, you're lazy, or Miles, you're a slob, that works if that's indeed what you said. Okay, and so this is a this is where the practice is so beautiful because it's my it's your whoever's using the skill. Let's say me in this case. It's my internal practice 
to um, weed out my own interpretations. And that's a really good practice. It's a really good practice to realize, oh, oh wait a minute. That's my spin on it. Somebody else, uh, one way to say this, somebody else might have an entirely different spin on it. Somebody else might say, no, no, she wasn't mean. That's their spin on it. My spin on it was you were mean. But spin interpretation has no meaning here. It doesn't matter. Because what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do is get my need met. It, and this is where we go back to what we said earlier, is it has nothing to do with being right. And that, that's the thing that, if there's one thing to take away from this so far, this conversation, is notice your mind automatically wanting to be right. Really pay attention to that. And every time you notice it, no, bring it to the surface so you can see it. You don't have to necessarily speak it, but t you know, notice it. because. And ask yourself, is that serving? And I would argue it's not serving. That you could be right till the cows come home, but that has nothing to do with getting your basic needs met. And if that's true, if that's true, then this is a game changer. Because uh, yeah. I, I think most of us want to get our basic needs met. And I think most of us don't really want to be right if we, if we look at it like that. Yeah. And it's so hard to. I mean, I feel like I'm literally waking up to this whole issue at this point in my life. Um, the phrase that I came to in, in working through couples therapy was the sin of certainty. That there's, you know, when, I, when I feel certain and there's righteousness and I'm convinced that I'm seeing this with 2020, I'm never more in my own self-created pot of misery at that point. Um, so I'm just trying to think, um, with the defensiveness, yep. if we, if we come back to that for, for a moment, yep. Yep. Um, let's look at that. So you said, if my partner said that to me, I feel, Josh, I feel uncomfortable when you didn't take out the garbage cause, um, the house is smelling, um, and which is the third part, by the way, that's the impact. Um, yep. So I just want to name that. So those are the three parts. I feel when you, because I, just very simple stuff that shows the other person how their behavior is affecting me without any judgments, without any interpretations. You're going to hear that as you're going to get defensive, but of course you will. That's, again, that's how we're wired because you're in the old paradigm of, I must have be bad. I must have done something wrong. There's a right and a wrong. And now she's telling me I did something that upset her. So that makes me wrong. So just notice that your mind is doing that. Again, that's the um, polarity. That's the, that's the duality. Um, I call that the binary mind because it's just exactly what the mind is doing. It's either right or wrong, good or bad. And it's doing the same thing your computer's doing. <laughs> and it's creating a, it's creating a virtual reality that isn't real because there is no ultimate right and wrong. There is no ultimate good and bad. We don't, and what I'm teaching is that we don't need those reference points. And I know that's radical and we can get into that more later, but that's where this is going. So notice that when you get defensive, your, your mind is translating into I'm bad. And of course, if you hear the other person saying you're wrong, you're going to get defensive. Of course you are. You said to me yesterday or Friday when we talked, what if your partner is blaming you? What if they're saying, Josh, you're an asshole. You're, you're wrong. You're bad. That's going to happen. That, you know, on planet Earth, that will happen. Um, 
And that's, those are difficult for sure. Um, well, and this relates to another theme in your book, uh, a line around, if you're in a relationship, you are going to hurt each other. Yes. There's just, you, there's no way of avoiding that. Yes. And it's a little bit, I, I, I the, 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 the Buddhist enthusiast in me hears that. It's like, there is dukkha. That there is this, yes. there is this experience of discontent, suffering, yes. and in relationship, it, it manifests as hurting one another. And yes. it's, it's not. I'm not. What's the phrase? Like, it, 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 I, it, I think if I hurt somebody, I feel bad. But it, but I, I sense you're trying to encourage me, the reader, or whoever you're working with, to to acknowledge that this is going to happen. Yes. And so let's let's touch on that. That's so important. Um, we, you know, we've been given a model of romantic love that's very inadequate. It's really um, superficial. You know, it's a fairy tale. You, you, the hard part in our in our story of falling in love, the the narrative that we tell in this culture, and I think throughout the world now, is the hard part is finding someone and falling in love. That's nonsense. That's the easy part, finding someone and falling in love. The hard part is what happens next when you. When you're living together and maybe having children or sharing finances and, and what's going to happen is you're going to hurt each other because you're so close. It's not that your partner is the wrong person or it's not that they're a mean person. It's that they don't know where your sensitivities are yet. Nobody can know where your sensitivities are except you. And they're just trying to take care of their needs. So the reason we get we hurt each other more in intimate relationships is because we're more vulnerable with that person. Our heart is open with them. Think about it. Who else are you that vulnerable? Probably nobody. And you're around each other all the time. And there's a high stakes there. You're you're expecting them to meet your needs. You're expecting them to love you the way that, the way you know in a in the initial stage of romance that happens easily, but then it gets harder because it wears off. And so you're expecting them to be infatuated with you and love everything you do, just like in the beginning. And that's not going to happen. So they're going to hurt your feelings, not intentionally, but it's going to happen in my mother's generation. And in, you know, a, a generation or two ago, the, the attitude was tip be etiquette. Just be very careful. Don't ever hurt anybody's feelings. Just be nice. That's really what the, the approach was. And what that, you can try it that way, but what the result is, is you get a superficial relationship. Nobody talks about their real emotions or needs. Everybody's kind of hiding their emotions. And as a child, growing up in a family like that, I, it was crazy. Me. I could feel everybody's emotions all the time, and nobody was talking about it. Uh, it sounds like my WASP culture 101. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was yeah. like, um, so, yeah, and I think... I do appreciate how you, 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 you basically to summarize what you're saying, it's like our cultural evolution and expectations about relationship has far outpaced our, our skill level. Our, um, uh, in your book, you talk about how in this more traditional form of society, a, few, a generation or two back, the roles were more clearly defined and you were meant to stay in those roles. And that itself had a kind of a tempering effect on communication, I think. Um, but now we want to have the support, um, and it, it actually really name it, I hadn't really thought of it like this before, but we, we want support, we want egalitarianism, we want uh, intimacy, and we want agency and individuality. Yes. And that's, 
and 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 then in my case it's a business partner too and you know and it's a lot to ask of one person um so i i i can totally totally uh appreciate that um I, I'm, my head is getting blank a little bit. I have a lot going on personally. Let, let me just finish but, that um, that thread because I don't want to lose that. The, the It's really important, I think, to, as a base here to say, instead of trying not to hurt your partner, which is what my parents did, I think it's much more realistic and useful to acknowledge that that's going to happen. When yeah. I work with couples, I tell them, this person that you're sitting with in this room is going to hurt you more than anyone else. Don't pretend otherwise. The question is not that. The question is, what do you do when that happens? How do you take care of yourself? If we can just shift that, we're going to be much more realistically oriented. And what my work is about is, how do you take care of yourself? What do you do when your feelings are hurt? That's that's the thing we need to learn. And Grant, what I do want to say that what can happen over time is your partner will get more. If you're working together and this process works for you, which it doesn't for everybody, but for a lot of people it does. Over time, you get more um, sensitive to where your partner's wounds are. And you, out of kindness, out of caring, you you can avoid those places. But that's very different than tiptoeing around them. <laughs> it's, just being, it's just being conscious and conscientious. And that can happen over time. But, but you have to process this stuff for that to happen. Right? So... I have the, the, part of the reason why my head goes blank is because there's like three, four, five okay. avenues okay. we could, could explore. Great. One is around. I mean, I think probably everybody. I, I imagine everyone listening um, might resonate with the getting feedback from the partner that doesn't feel good and feeling like they get knocked into the defensive position that I was describing. Um. I know you have, you, you apply your formula of feelings, facts, and impact to that, right? So that, like, let's say my partner says, to use the example, um, I'm, I'm feeling uh, upset because when, when, you, when you didn't take out the trash and now we have the smell in the, in the garage for another week. And you know, I, I could, I can even just saying that I can feel the mobilization in me saying, no, you don't understand the trash wasn't fully totally about like what X, Y, and Z reason. But what you're, when there is a charge like that, I mean, charge, not just in terms of emotion, but like a kind of a direct charge of like, you didn't do, you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. Um, you speak to a, a kind of a, a, a process of supportive listening. Yeah. I think that's the the phrase that you're using for this supportive listening, where you're you're able to do a couple things simultaneously. You're you're able to to step out of the stream of your own story, which we were were speaking about, and in doing that, ref, reflect back more or less what this what your partner's statement was, right? Yes. Do I have that correct? Yes. Look, so. <laughs> This is, I'm like, I feel like I understand, like, I understand the theory and I understand the phrases and I'm just telling you, like, it is whatever, whatever, like, I'm just overwhelmed by how, overwhelmed by the intensity of how difficult it is to do that in yeah. the moment. Yeah. 
Right. So just want to add to that, that when you do, if and when you can do that, you that is your way out of the defensiveness. Because what you're doing is you're letting your partner, you're letting it be about your partner. Okay. And your partner may be, your partner may be already phrasing it, framing it that way, but, the, but she, or he may not, they might be blaming you, but either way, when you, when you, the attitude, the new paradigm is if she or he is upset, it's about them. It's not about you. You triggered it. You did something that triggered it. And if you want, if you care about the relationship, I would argue you have to, you need to have a conversation about that. You need to understand you know how your behavior triggered their emotions so that you can work it out but it's still theirs uh and when you use the skill of supportive listening you're you you if you try it you'll see that it works you actually then stay calmer because you realize oh this is them they're the one that's charged it's their need that isn't being you can help them meet their need but but it's not about you that's and that that was what that was something that left out me out, out at me in your book, and I'm just underlining what you just said. That when your partner speaks to you, they're they're. I'm hearing you correctly. They're speaking about themselves, not about you. Even when they're talking about you, yes, they can only ever give you information about them. They can think about it. You know, when someone says, "Josh, you're lazy," you're not gonna you're not gonna buy that. You're not going to take that in because they don't know. That's information about you. The, you're the one that knows that. They don't. They can't know that. So what they are telling you is information about them. And if we just if we just use that metric, it's really helpful. The only thing anybody can ever tell me about is them. Hmm. Um, and if I put on that that if I change my lens to think, oh, how, what is what is she telling me about her? What is my partner telling me about her right now? Even even though it sounds like she's blaming me, what is she telling me about her? It's a different way to look at it, and and that does you know I think to, you keep bringing up the point, and it's really worth of uh, you know reiterating that we get we freeze when someone blames us. We or even if we hear blame, we freeze. So that could be the starting place for you for anybody. Um, don't don't leap over that. You can't just go use these skills if you're frozen. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I and I have been, and I've par- in parallel been reading about uh, polyvagal theory and and you know what's going on in the nervous system and sure. and also becoming quite quite more conscious of how quickly I can freeze. Like that freeze is my default. Like I can dis- and I think I've used meditation as a way to freeze and dissociate and sure. you know, not, to not react. So okay, I'm not reacting, but I'm not actually participating anymore yes. either. Yes. Um and so so there's I want to cr- connect the dots between two things here. One is what we were just saying that when your partner speaks to you about frustrations or whatever, they're sharing about themselves. It's not about you to a certain degree. And then let's say they do say, you know, I'm, I was, I feel hurt when you didn't take the trash out to use our example. You in the book, you suggest if, if you're able at that point, if the person that's receiving that charge is able, they, that they should say something like, I'm sorry, I hurt you. I'm sorry. I hurt you. Which I want to talk about that because 
to me, that would seem to assume responsibility for their feeling, what they're feeling internally. So like, and then, and that kind of, I've had a conversation with this woman about what she calls everyday narcissism and which we'll get too deep into the weeds on this, but she says, you know, we, this conditioning from our families where we feel responsible for how someone else feels, we have to take care of them, or we, we feel that they're responsible for how we're feeling. And you kind of have to unblend from both of these myths before you can be on stable ground, take care of your needs, which I I think you agree with. But the, the phrase, I'm sorry, I hurt you. And the responsibility that it assumes, um, it doesn't feel natural to me. So so I just want to name that. But I also want to name that in the couple's work that we've done, that was one of the things the therapist was trying to get me to say was more often was like, I'm sorry you feel that way, or I'm sorry, whatever, like to apologize for it. And and it, it always felt disingenuous, and it also felt like... I was agreeing to being at fault. Like, so I was, I was submitting to a truth claim that I didn't really agree with. And then it, I think I just, it would just cause me to shut down even sure, more. Sure. So I'm trying, I'm trying to describe my own neurotic mix here, but it, I think it, I think it would be helpful to, 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 to look, uh, look through some of that. Beautiful. Yeah. Let's look at that. So the first thing I think to consider is that you're, framing it in the old frame not it's not right or wrong or good or bad but it's important to know that there's a there's that's a certain frame that your mind is using and that's the frame of guilt and blame and shame that that there's a right and a wrong if when we're in the binary the duality frame which most of us are most of the time um you know i I would argue this is a slight tangent here but i would argue that you know the whole teaching of the buddha is how do you get from duality to non-duality how do you get from from binary you know polarized thinking to singularity so when we're in the binary paradigm which most of us are most of the time we're gonna translate it into i i did something wrong and then you're naturally saying well if i apologize then i'm then i'm it's it's like you know in a court of law when somebody sues you and and you say i'm sorry you're admitting guilt Okay, so what if we take guilt off the table? Now, I know that's a big what if. It's a huge what if, but that is what we're talking about. What I'm talking about is a, is a way to relate to other people where right and wrong have no meaning. That, that, what that means is morality has no standing, and guilt and shame have no bearing. They're, 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 they're meaningless. The morality, I get it. I, um. I get a chill when you say morality has no standing. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah, I got to I got to flag that because I can't even think about like what is yeah. You know how to think through that one yet? That's maybe that's a that would be a great conversation for another podcast. Yeah, I did want to name it though because and and I was assume that would stir up you and probably a lot of the listeners here. Um, So, but really, what I'm talking about is what, what I want you to notice is that when you use the word "I'm sorry" the way you just used it. You're associating with I'm guilty. You know, you use the word responsible. I think that's different than guilt, and I want to I want to say why. But do you, can you feel that that? Am I right about that? That when you imagine yourself saying I'm sorry in that scenario, there's a there's an association of guilt. 
Did I oh, get yeah, something? the shame is there. Okay, okay. So uh, that's why that doesn't work for you. And I, first of all, I would say that I'm not advocating that people jump to I'm sorry. Um, what I want you to do is reflect back what they said. And you can do that with your head. You know, it sounds like you feel upset when I didn't take out the garbage because the garage smells. Um, and by the way, it, since we're using this example, and it's not a bad example, um, the assumption is that you had an agreement, right? That, that you would take out the garbage and she would do something else. You know, the assumption is you've talked about this, you had an agreement. If you didn't, then, you know, this conversation probably doesn't have any bearing. But let's say you had an agreement and, um, and you didn't take out the garbage as you said you would. Let's leave it at that. Um, so now she's got an issue. I would say her issue is not just that the, or her impact on her is not just that the garage doesn't smell, but that she may not feel so trusting of you because you, you didn't do what you said. So that's how it lands on me often is I don't feel, I feel uncomfortable around you because you said you would do this and you didn't. So now I don't know if I can believe what you say. That's just how it lands on me. Now that, that would, that could really dig into your sense of guilt, right? But if you let it be about me, it's a different story. And so the, that's the first level is just repeating back. Sounds like you felt uncomfortable when I didn't take out the garbage because the garage smelled and then you didn't know if you could trust me. The next level, and this is what I do when I'm working with couples, but you can learn to do this on your own, is see if you can bring it down to the heart. The head can do that reflecting part. But then the heart could be the one that puts yourself in that person's shoes and says, oh, I could see how the, she could have experienced that. Yeah. I could see how she could interpret my behavior that way. You're not, you're not admitting there's no right or wrong here. There's not a, you're not agreeing with her story. But you can see how that person could feel that way. And if you can do that's what I call empathy. And what this skill does is it activates that, um, which could be equated with compassion. You and I talked about that the other day. But it, it, you're activating your heart now, and you're feeling how that your behavior could have affected that person. That way. You're just feeling. And the best way to do this is imagine that they're a stranger, not your, not your wife, not your partner, but a stranger. Because oddly enough, we can often have empathy for strangers that we can't have for our own immediate family. So, and if you can feel that empathy, then the then the apology is just it's just a natural thing. Oh, I can see how you felt that way, and I'm sorry that what I did caused you to feel that way. That's all. Um, and it's it's easy to do if you take guilt and shame off the table. It doesn't solve the problem. You still may have to talk about what to do next time. But it goes a long way toward connecting you with that person. <clears throat> and if you can't feel it, if you don't feel the apology, if you are connecting it with guilt and shame, then don't do that. Don't pretend. But focus on your own mind and notice, ask, just notice, oh, there's that story that I'm guilty. Um, being responsible is different than feeling guilty in my, my judgment. The, 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 saying, oh, yeah, I can see how, because I didn't take out the garbage, you got to deal with this smell in the garage. Maybe she goes out there more than you do. I don't know. And, and, uh, or maybe you don't have a good sense of smell. Who knows? And, or, and I can see how I, we had this understanding and I didn't do what I said I was going to do. I can see how that would kind of rock the boat a little bit in terms of trust. I can see that. So now I'm taking responsibility, but there's no guilt. It's just like, oh, now I'm more aware of how I affect you. That's, we need that feedback to be aware. We need that feedback. I can't. I can't just be aware of how my behavior is affecting you. 
most of the time, I'm, I have no clue how my behavior is affecting you. But if you tell me, oh, my, like, oh okay, I, that's how my behavior is affecting Now I have a choice. I could choose to keep doing that behavior or not, but it's up to me. And if I take guilt off the table, that clears the way for love, for caring. I'd be like, oh, well, I really do care about you, and I don't want to make you uncomfortable. So I'll, I'm going to probably do it differently next time. And that's how that could play out. The, the, what I'm f- appreciating is the, the shift from the head to the heart, relating from the heart, being able to see how it might look from someone else's perspective. Um, and the shift from the head to heart in some ways seems like it is blocked by feelings of guilt, shame. Yes, that's exactly right. So that thing that, that we, we thought guilt, this is, this actually gets into the morality conversation. That thing we thought was keeping us straight, keeping us good was guilt and shame. That's how morality works. Think about it. That's how morality works is that if you don't, if you're not, you don't toe the line, you're guilty. There's shame, you're blamed. So the thing that we think is keeping us in line is guilt and shame. It's actually not. It's blocking us from empathy. Empathy will keep you in line. That's the, that's the antidote to morality is empathy. If we just think about it, look at what's happening around the world right now. We're killing each other. We're, we're human beings are just out of control. You know, we're, we're, we're destroying the earth and we're killing each other at a rapid rate. And morality doesn't seem to be working. <laughs> it's not. It doesn't work. We need to see that. Morality doesn't work. It might be it might have been a good idea, maybe, but it doesn't work. It's not working. We can know that it's wrong to pollute to kill the planet, to make the climate warm, but we're still doing it. We can know that it's wrong to initiate war, but we're still doing it. So morality doesn't control us, but empathy does. If we can feel someone else's pain, if we can feel that person, and and we can talk more about how we do that, but if we can feel the empathy for that person, our behavior is affected by that. And to me, and what it does in a beautiful way when it's healthy empathy is it connects us. It, I care about that person because I feel connected to that person. I feel like they're an extension of me. And that's where we want to get to, right? You want with your partner, with your romantic partner, you don't want to see them as the person who's making you guilty. Because that just, like, who wants to be around that? You know, that now you're, you're, you're starting to distance from each other. But if you see them as an extension of you, then you can feel like, oh, yeah, I, they had to deal with a stinky garage. <laughs> and now they don't really trust that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. I can see that. I can see that. And now you're feeling empathy and, and you're connected with them. And guilt, exactly the way you said it, if you feel guilty, you won't be able to do that. Yeah. No, it, 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 I'm just starting to appreciate how much of a, a, uh, like a soul cage guilt is in terms of keeping something out or. For preventing preventing the heart from from and the compassion in the heart from just flowing it's it's not even that you have to it really isn't a cognitive exercise anymore it's 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 one uh coming from a, a greater purity of heart in a way um so again so many ideas going through <laughs> through my head um is there 
where do you think that this, this conversation might want to go right now? Do you have a sense of that? I think um, hopefully we've stirred things up for people. Um, yeah. You know, the thing that you, let's go back to the truth trap. Um, maybe the, this will be a way to kind of bring this to some conclusion. You know, and related to that, um, my head, part of the, the, the morality thing really is like, I mean, this is, this is, this, you're a radical now you're, you're going radical and, um, and I'm, I'm trying to dance with you on that one. If, if I hear, I'm wondering if what you would think of this, it's almost like morality is a conceptualized abstraction of values in the heart that I haven't I've never tried to articulate this before, but I'm just responding to what you're saying. If it's not about morality, it's about coming to compassion. Because my fear is that if we, if we say we don't have morality, there's no good or bad, then then suddenly, well, how does this not fall into nihilism? Okay. And, and we get this anarchy of people bludgeoning and butchering each other, which they're already doing, but do you know what I'm saying? Well, let's not skip over the fact that we're already doing that. I mean, yeah. We've given morality a good run, I think. Um, religion, I mean, you know, our whole, our whole human culture, you could argue, is based on some form of morality. That's why when I suggest throwing it away, it was like, no, <laughs> I get that, but it's not working. So that's key. I think to, to just say that we, you know, what's the fear we're going to kill each other. Well, we're already doing that. So, but here's a way that I might say it. You, you, morality is a, is a um, distorted way of trying to get our needs met. It's a dysfunctional, distorted, way to try to get our needs met. That's all it is. And what's the need? Safety, right? If we have law rules of this is right, and this is wrong, then I feel safe. And there is, I, I want to acknowledge there's truth in that. I, I, I like living in a society that has law and order because I feel a little safer. And I've been in places that don't have law and order and I don't feel particularly safe. So I, I like, the, I like some rules and I like some law and order. Uh, and I think it does contribute to safety, but we have to acknowledge that the morality is not doing that for us. Um, it's not creating safety. And one reason is that we just blame each other because we don't have the same set of rules. We don't, the, you think this is right. I think this is right. So now we're going to kill each other to figure out who's right. That's where morality leads us. So it, it makes, ultimately, morality makes the world less safe. That's how dysfunctional it is. It's in the, it, to make it very simple, we could say that morality is an attempt to make the world more safe. What's it actually doing? It's making the world less safe. It's doing the exact opposite. So it's broken. It's not working. And I think there's a much more uh, elegant solution, which is what would really help us get our needs met? And we have to acknowledge needs doesn't mean just what serves me, because one of my needs is to feel connected to you. That's one of my basic needs is to belong and feel connected. Uh, one of my basic needs is to serve other people, to feel like I'm I'm contributing positively to someone else's life. That's a basic need of ours. You know, so basic needs aren't just me, me, me. It's it's what makes us thrive, what makes us feel alive and whole and and euphoric, you know, what really makes us thrive, and that's being connected to a bigger whole. So if we look at needs in that way, it changes the picture. And morality doesn't get us there. But if we focus on what would help me meet my needs, 
that's a direction we can go in. And empathy is a piece of it, and so is integrity, which we haven't talked about yet. But integrity is my uh, proposal that we that we um, throw out morality and we replace it with integrity. And integrity is when it's very it's you know a simple way to describe integrity is when what I do is what I think is right. What I do is what I think is right. And if you look at the way most of us behave, we don't do that. Most of us don't behave that way. But that's the problem with morality is it's all externalized. And I can expect you to obey the morality, but I'm not going to obey the morality. No, no, none of us feels like we have to play by the rules when nobody's looking. That's the problem with I think that the, it, Isn't that Christopher Hitchens' favorite line? Uh, that morality is what you do in your, your house when no one's looking? Yes. So I don't know about morality, but morality is what we expect everybody else to do. Mm-hmm. And we do that when we think people are watching us. But when we when we don't think we're being watched, we don't. Most of us don't play by our own rules, and that there's nothing wrong with that. I, I'm guilt and shame is off the table. There's nothing bad about it. But what that does is it destroys your own integrity. It it you split yourself inside. Just think about it. And that's those of you listening that are meditators, you can know this. You when you go into internally meditation you see how split you are you see how you know you divided your mind is it thinks one moment it thinks this way another moment it thinks that way and you contradict yourself all the time you you do things that you don't believe are right we all do and when we do that we destroy our own integrity if we understood what integrity could do for us not not the goodness of it not the morality of integrity but what integrity does is when I'm in integrity with myself, I'm clairvoyant. I can I can get insights, revelations. They come. That's why insight meditation works. Is if you sit long enough with your mind, you naturally come to integrity with yourself. You stop lying to yourself. You have to see what your mind is doing, and you clean it up. You stop lying to yourself. You you be you. Meditation leads to integrity because you're going in. Nobody else is looking at you. You are. And you see how crazy the mind is, and you let go of the stuff that doesn't fit. And you come into integrity. And what happens then is you get insight. You get revelation. You you start to see things clearly. And it's amazing. It's incredible. It's like a superpower we have. It is the superpower we have that most of us aren't using. And the reason we don't have access to it is that we're not in integrity with ourselves. When you're divided internally, as most of us are, you don't get insight. You don't get you don't get um, intuition. It doesn't happen. So then you have to rely on your rational mind to try to figure everything out. It's just a nightmare. So when you are in integrity, you have mental clarity, and it's not a judgment. It's not you don't have mental clarity on what's right and what's wrong. What I get mental clarity on is what. What's right for me in this moment? What I need to do now? Just speaking to you. I don't know what I'm going to say next, but if I'm in integrity, it happens. What? What's the definition you have for integrity again? Being, saying, doing what you think is right for yourself. Doing what you think is right for yourself. So, you know, I have a voice that's saying, "Well, how is that just not?" a recipe for pathological grandiosity, narcissism, sociopathy, yada, 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 fill in your personality disorder of choice. But like, isn't, how does that 
how does that connect to what you were saying earlier about one's needs, not just being about personal needs, but the need for, we have, we have social needs, we have interconnect, interpersonal needs. Um, I'm, I'm not, I want to follow you through that. Sure. How, how, how you connect those. Yeah. So you're making, you're making the obvious um, connection between, you know, if we take, if we take some sort of moral code off the table, then we give license to our, our worst impulses. and. Um, and we become, you know, destructive to ourselves and other people. Um, so again, I would argue we're already being enormously destructive to ourselves and other people. So the moral guardrails aren't working. That's that's always what I start with. It's, if it worked, I, I'd be fine with it. Really, I don't care what we call it or what it looks like. But it's important that we find stuff that works. It's important that we. That we, to me, that's what becoming more conscious is, is what's actually going to work. And integrity. So what keeps us from being self-destructive is when we recognize what our real needs are. Is, is When I start to ask myself, what do I really need right now? That's when I start, when I stop being self-destructive, I start being self-nourishing. And that's a practice and it's a process and not everyone's going to, get on board with that. And so people are going to continue to hurt each other. Of course, this isn't a recipe for no one's ever going to hurt anybody again. That's, that's unrealistic. But if integrity is the, is the, if we emphasize integrity and teach and encourage, uh, prompt people to toward integrity, I think we'll get a lot further than using morality. And I, because then, you know, a good example of this is what happened. And I don't know, as much details I'd like to, but in South Africa, when apartheid ended, they 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 kind of broke ground on this beautiful new system called truth and reconciliation that we now, you know, in in some of our courts are using as uh, victor of offender uh, mediation and reconciliation. And what they did in South Africa is they they brought a lot of the white former leaders who did a lot of harm. In the apartheid system, they brought them in and said, you have two choices. This is how I understand it. We're either going to try you in court and, you know, like most systems would do, or you can tell us what you did and and talk to the people. We'll get the people in the room that you hurt, the family members of people you killed. You can talk to them and you can atone. You can, you can acknowledge what you did and apologize is basically what they were asking people to do. And it's beautiful because what they gave people to do is a, 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 an opportunity to to come into integrity right and whereas the legal system doesn't do that if they had chosen to go through the court system they'd be like you're a criminal you did this wrong no criminal thinks they did anything wrong go to jail and ask people did you do it they'll be like, no i didn't do anything i'm innocent everybody says that so there's no integrity achieved through the legal system and i'm not dissing the legal system i'm glad we have it but what I'm saying is it's, it's, it's really a shadow of what it could be. And integrity, we know we, you know, we have systems now that we can achieve that. The, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is a beautiful example in how integrity is much more powerful. What they, my understanding is the reason they did it was they knew that we're going to have to live together. Apartheid's over, but the white people aren't going to leave necessarily. And how are we going to live together after this? You know, what are we going to do? And the wisdom was, 
let's see if we can reconcile. And this was one way to do it. And it's, it's a beautiful model of, of using integrity instead of morality. So we have some examples of how to do this. Again, we're, we're, I think we're at the very beginning of implementing that. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, <laughs> we got into it. I, um, yeah, no, I, I, the, the, I mean, the, the, I know my head's getting caught up with where, with the words of truth and we, we were saying we're putting truth aside, but truth and reconciliation is this, you're, it's sort of a different use of the term in the, yeah. in that process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the integrity, what I'm taking away from it so far, and I have to go back and listen through this again, but the integrity piece, um, if we step out of a binary right and wrong morality, right and wrong thinking, and the integrity is about doing what you need to do, doing what's right for you is, I mean, I, I'm still like, I can't even re- re- replay this. I know you've asked you in the conversation, well, how do you define integrity? It, 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 it's like, right, let's it, it say, feels let's so say, foreign to me. <laughs> let's try to different. living up to your own values. Yeah. Living so up living- to your own values, walking your talk, mm-hmm. doing what you would tell somebody else is the right thing to do. Yeah. Here's a good measure. Those of you that have had children, that's when your that's when your integrity level gets tested to the max. Like because they're going to test you every which way. So doing what you tell your children is right to do. That's integrity. Doing what you think is right to do, not what you want, not what your impulses tell you in the moment, but what you would tell somebody else to do as the right thing to do. That's integrity. Mm-hmm. We all we all know what that is. We we know what we value. We know what we think is is right and wrong. And so integrity is simply living up to that. And that can adjust over time. You can your integrity is a moment to moment thing. It's not that that's the difference. Morality is sort of like boom. These are the ten commandments. These are the laws set in stone and never changes. Integrity is very fluid. I don't know what um, what I value as right in this moment until it happens. But Integrity is I'm going to do what my internal value system tells me to do. That's integrity. And when you see people with integrity, it's incredible. The power they have is unbelievable. That that all the great movers and shakers, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Christ, Buddha, they were in, in integrity with themselves. That's why they had so much power. They they knew what they felt and what they believed was right, and they did it no matter what. And most of us are aspiring to that but you know that's what we we want to be and i'm just saying yeah that's the thing that's that's uh, mike again fireworks going off it's it's like i feel like you're describing the ethics of integrity versus the ethics of morality and and i don't even know how to i don't fully know even what i'm just saying when i say but it, it, it i mean there is a there's an ethos around being internally aligned and and if what you're describing it sounds like it's like you have internal integrity but then there's interpersonal integrity through uh by by taking out the the dichotomy or the duality of right and wrong in the relationship you as an agent or person in the relationship is able to align with values that you hold for the relationship you know, say kindness or love or compassion. Um, th- that does make, I mean, at least 
intellectually makes sense to me. Um, I can f- feel into that in terms of my own experience. Um, and that's, it, it's just a very, it's a, it's a very different par- paradigm, a way of, way, <laughs> way of looking at it. Um, I'm, I want to flag this. I, I probably been coming to the end of this, this particular episode, but I want to flag something you said there around insight meditation as a way of coming into integrity and, and, and opening up intuition and clairvoyance. And, um, I'd be, that's, that would be something that I, I think would be, be quite interesting to look into more as we go further. Um, are there any final words for this particular chapter? that you would like to share? Yeah, I think, I think it would be because we, you led with this and I think we've kind of, you, you have coined a a new term called the truth trap. And I like that. Um, And I think it ties in really beautifully with this morality conversation. Let it be said that these are potentially big topics. uh, And, all we're going to be able to do today is kind of stir the pot, but that's good. It's good to stir the pot. So, well, you know, and, and that note, listeners didn't hear this because we were talking about this before we started recording, but around that phrase, the truth trap. Um, so over the weekend, as I was preparing to talk to you, I pulled out a, um, a text that Gil Fronsdale had translated. Uh, I think it's called the Buddha before Buddhism or something like that. And it's, uh, his translation of a, a very short series of teachings that ostensibly are possibly the earliest articulation of the Buddhist teachings mm-hmm. before the codified suttas that we know of as the Four Noble Truths and everything in the in the Pali Canon for the most part. Th- th- these are very very early teachings, and um, when I opened that up, there was. Uh, a short discourse on the called it was called the short discourse on the dead end and the long discourse on the dead end. But basically, it was describing how the Buddha himself didn't teach a doctrine of truth, and um, it, in sense, he taught a doctrine or a, 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 a practice of non clinging not clinging to views and experiencing the peace that emerges from that or arises from that non-clinging. Um, but he wasn't asserting something positively, like this is what you have to believe, or this is the, to use the language we've been exploring, it's like he wasn't asserting a morality even. And, and so as challenged as I was by our conversation, as I, and I think as challenged as many people might be listening to this, um, a, I want to welcome that challenge. I want to welcome the feedback to our discussion. But when we meet again, I will, like, I'll, I'll be looking into that more, and um, uh, because it is, it's such, it is such a radical um, position. But I think it's, 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 it's rooted in the Buddhist teaching himself, at least from this this particular group of teachings. It, I can even hear the Taoists. Uh, teachings from Chuangzi and Laozi that that uh, they're refusing to make an assertion one way or the other other on something, and yet this is how harmony in the Tao flows. You know, um, so we're, we are we're just scratching the surface here, and I I really do look forward to connecting with you again, which I think will be sometime in the new year because are you taking some time off or traveling for a while? Yeah, I'll be out of the country for the next couple of months. Okay. But I look forward to doing more of this. Yeah, me too. I want to thank you, Miles. Thank you so much. And 
I'll have a link for your website. Um, and so, is there any book in particular that you would want me to uh, point to or a well, few since, books? Since you mentioned it, I'll just hold it up. Um, this is the book that uh, Josh was referring to earlier. It's a little booklet. It's very thin easy to read, um, conscious communication for couples. So some of the stuff that Josh was, uh, referring to is in this little booklet. And if you're in a couple and, uh, or you aspire to be in a couple and you want some skills, uh, check it out. Yeah. And I, I'll highly recommend it in Great. my newsletter too. Stay, stay, stay tight for one second. I'm going to stop recording, but okay. thanks again. Yeah. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I know it got out there. It went out. It got, there's a lot got, that got bought on the table in some respects. Um, but I'm deep into uh, exploring many books that Miles has written on my own exploration now. And um, I'm really looking forward to having him back on the show and um, continuing to explore some of the things we opened up in this, in this first conversation. Do check out his books, Conscious Communication or Conscious Communication for Couples. They're two books. Um, one for couples is quite a bit shorter and um, just gives you the essence of it. But if you really want to get into it, I really recommend the, the longer book, Conscious Communication. Both are great. Both are available in the links in the show notes, as well as a link to his website where he has a wonderful course, an on-demand course you can take on conscious communication for, I think it's only about $49. Very reasonably priced. It Again, as I said to my Irish godsons, if you learn these skills, you will save yourself years of interpersonal struggle <laughs> at least that's the way i feel now so take good care uh, let me know what you think of the episode i look forward to seeing you in the next show and until then stay safe stay strong keep practicing and i wish you all my best